0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Well, come on, that was pretty weak. Um, and I'm not going to make you do it again, because that's even more lame when, like, a pastor does that. Like, oh, you can do better than that. But come on, listen, listen, um, how about those Mariners, right? <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. You know, what? what I, one thing I said when I first got here, uh, the Mariners were on, like, a tear. They were, like, winning all these games, and I promised they would never lose a game again. That was... That was was a lie, right? I'm sorry about that. But I do now promise they're going to win the World Series, guaranteed. Like no, no problem. But how awesome is it that they're coming? Did I jinx them? Did I just jinx them? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Probably not now. See, sorry. Um, But hey, a game is coming to Seattle on Saturday. How awesome is that, right? Um, I turned the game off yesterday at six to one. I'm such a lame fan. but uh, I'm sure many of you were celebrating and so full of joy as they came back. But listen, that is circumstantial joy, okay? That is not the kind of joy that we are going after here (laughs) this morning. We are at the beginning of our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians because we are going after the joy that Paul has in this letter and that is resilient joy. And we want this joy because it's not shaken by emotional fluctuations and circumstantial changes. This is joy that is resilient And this joy is not merely a mood. How did we uh, define this joy last week? We defined it as a supernatural delight in the people, the promises, and the presence of God. That is what this joy is. It is a supernatural delight in the people, presence, and promises of God. And Paul in this letter is just overflowing with joy. We see the word for joy either as a noun or a verb occur 16 times in this letter and um All the while, Paul is stuck and suffering in prison. And so each and every Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to ask ourselves the questions, why in the world does Paul have this kind of joy and how can we get some of this joy for ourselves? How can we get some for ourselves? And last week, uh, we looked at just the beginning of the letter, those first 11 verses, basically just the introduction. And although it was just an introduction, um, we were already able to pull away from that part of the letter two important questions that we can be asking ourselves as we go after this joy. Do you remember what those questions were? Do you remember? What is my posture and what else? What is my perspective, right? What is my posture? What is my heart's posture? What was Paul's heart's posture? Paul, Paul took the posture of a servant, of a slave, uh, of someone who, who would submit himself to others, not a posture where he desired to be served by others or a posture of self-importance. And that's so important because self-importance is a surefire way to prevent ourselves from experiencing the joy that God has on offer for us. And so what is my posture? But also, what is my perspective? How am I looking at my life right now? Am I looking at my life from a human perspective? Am I looking at the problems in my life? And and am I frustrated that my life is not turning out the way that I wanted it to and that I dreamed about? Or or am I looking at it from a godly perspective? Am I focused on the people that God has surrounded me with in my walk with Him? Am I I rooting myself in the promises that He's given me? Like this past week, as you've walked through this past week, and, and maybe Maybe you've felt at times like, like, that, like that feeling of languishing that we were talking about last week or that you just didn't have the joy that you really wanted. Have you been asking yourself these questions? What is my posture? What is my perspective? And at the end of last week's message, remember we just touched on that idea that one of the ways that we can shift our perspective is, is, by, is by being grateful focusing on gratitude, instead of starting our days by looking at our phones or freaking out about everything that has to be done, would we begin to, to uh, express gratitude to God for, for what he's doing in our lives? Would, would our attitudes throughout the day be permeated with this kind of Gratitude and gratefulness, and that's the first small but important step we can make as we seek to shift our perspective to a godly perspective so that we can receive the joy that God would have for us. But choosing gratitude is only one piece of the puzzle in shifting our perspective as we go after resilient joy. There is more, and and what is that more? Well, we're gonna see it today in our passage in Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go and get those out right now and turn to Philippians chapter one, Uh, I mentioned this last week. For those of you who weren't with us last week, I'm teaching from the New English Translation. So if you're using a phone Bible and you can just kind of hit the top and switch the translation if it makes following along a little bit easier, we're gonna pick up right where we left off. Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 12. Paul writes this. I want you to know brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. And so remember, um, the, the Philippians had heard about Paul's situation and they sent this guy named Epaphroditus to go check in on Paul and essentially be like, Paul, how are you doing? And with Epaphroditus, they gave him money and food and water and supplies to help Paul out. And, and how was Paul doing? You know, they were worried because Paul was like the guy. Paul was the guy who brought the gospel to Philippi. He was the guy who was bringing this gospel message, the euangelion, to, to like the world. And he was moving and he was advancing the gospel and they were probably concerned for his physical health. Like how was he doing in prison? He was getting kind of old. So they were wondering like, is he on his last leg? Is he even alive? And if he is alive, is he depressed? Is he dejected? Because the, the purpose of his life, Paul felt, was to advance the gospel. And here he is stuck in prison. So they're wondering, like Paul, like, how are you doing? Like, Are you depressed, is that what he says? What does Paul say here in verse 12? He says just the opposite. He says just the opposite. He says that his situation, his situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The NIV translates it this way, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And I think this statement from Paul kind of begs the question, what has happened to Paul? What has happened to Paul? Well, well, if you have your Bibles, you can keep your finger in Philippians. Let's go ahead and look at Paul's autobiography and see what's happened to Paul up until this point. You might be familiar with the story, but let's go there anyway. You can put one finger in Philippians and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we can pick it up in verse 9. Here are some things that have happened to Paul. Paul writes this. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to die. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, we are dishonored. Now listen to this. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed brutally treated and without a roof over our heads. We do hard work toiling with our own hands. We are verbally abused. We respond with a blessing. When persecuted, we endure. When people lie about us, we answer in a friendly manner. We are the world's dirt and scum even now. And so like here's a list of some of the things that have happened to Paul. Condemned to die. He was dishonored, hungry, and thirsty, and rags. He was homeless. Like, does that sound like an easy life to you? No. And that's only part of what happened to Paul. He actually goes on. If you flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he lists even more things that have happened to him as he sought to advance the gospel. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 4, he writes this. As God's servants, we have commended ourselves in every way with great endurance, In persecutions, in difficulties, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, note the plural there, this isn't Paul's first rodeo, in riots and troubles, in sleepless nights, in hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by benevolence, by the Holy Spirit, by genuine love, by truthful teaching, by the power of God with weapons of righteousness both for the right hand and for the left through glory and dishonor, through slander and praise regarded as imposters and yet true as unknown and yet well known as dying and yet see we continue to live as those who are beaten and yet not executed. Listen to this, verse 10, as sorrowful but always rejoicing always rejoicing, sorrowful but always rejoicing, as poor but making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. That's Paul's life. Those hardships, beatings, imprisonments, I mean the list goes on and on. I think if Paul were to actually write a book, it would be called Your Worst Life Now. Like that would be Paul's book, right? (laughs) Talk about a difficult story. Talk about awful circumstances. Now with all of that in the back of your head, turn back over to Philippians. Turn back over to Philippians. Paul says, you know, all these things that have happened to me, the hardships, the homelessness, the hunger, wearing rags, and where has it landed me? I am back in prison. And is Paul depressed? Is he dejected? Is he like, man, I am losing all hope. I'm just gonna throw it in. I'm getting old. It's time to retire. No. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that everything that has happened to me has actually served to advance God's purposes in my life. They've all served to advance the gospel. To advance the gospel. The Greek word for advance here is this word prokopane. And this word would have uh, stirred this kind of vivid word picture in the listeners' minds in in Philippi because this same word was the word that was used, associated with the roads that were built for the Roman army. You see, they would send uh, people in the army and they would send slaves to clear out the way, take down trees, move boulders, level the ground, build bridges so they could advance the road and advance the army. And Paul is saying that all of those things that have happened to me have served to do the same thing. They've served to advance the gospel. They've served to advance the gospel. And Paul gives us a couple of examples of how he is seeing this. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, he writes, the whole imperial guard And everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. This is kind of an interesting way that Paul writes this here because he he says the, the whole imperial guard and everyone else, right? Like why wouldn't he just say everyone else? He is clearly highlighting this imperial guard for a reason. And in the Greek, this word imperial guard is actually one word called praetorio, which the Latinized version is the praetorium. And, and this, uh, this group of people, when we hear a prison guard, it wasn't just kind of some run-of-the-mill guy sort of standing guard by the prison. The praetorium were an elite group of soldiers made up of nine different cohorts of a thousand men each. These guys were like Caesar's elite bodyguards. Many historians think that these are the guys who were involved in the assassination of Caligula. I mean, they were powerful, influential men, and Paul is like, all of these guys, man, they know why I'm in prison, that I am in, the, in prison for the sake of Jesus Christ. These guys know. These guys would've been on like a four-hour rotation with Paul, and you can just kind of imagine how one of these conversations with Paul would've gone down, yeah? Like you think like a a soldier kind of goes up to Paul and he's like, so tell me, like, why are you in prison here? Um, You don't seem like the murdering type, you know. Is it tax evasion? It's gotta be tax evasion, right? And Paul's like, "Ah, no, actually, actually, um, do you remember that guy, Jesus? Uh, You guys tried to kill him down in like that southeast province of Israel. Remember him? Um, I actually think that, that he like, he rose from the dead. And and, and that, that he is actually the king of this world and king of the universe, not Caesar. You know all that Roman propaganda you guys try to propagate that like Caesar is lord, man, I think that's nonsense. I think Jesus is lord. And I know you guys are pumping the stock of this empire, but let me tell you what. This empire is going to fade away. This whole thing is going to be ancient history because Jesus is king. And man, he his empire, it's rising and it's never going to fade away. And you know, I've been stuck in this prison cell for a while and I've been working on this letter to my friends in Philippi and I think it's coming along really really well. I think they're going to love it. They're going to read it for a few months. It's going to be amazing. And, and, and listen, I'm actually, and at one point, I break out into poetry, okay? It's really, want to hear it? Want to hear it? Let me try it on you real quick. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, not Nero, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you think? (laughs) And the soldier probably would have just been like, oh, that's why you're in prison, <laughs> you're out of your mind. That, that idea right there, that idea is dangerous. Like if that idea gets out and it spreads, it's going to be the end of this empire. And it was, and it was. I mean, can you imagine the chatter amongst the prison guards? Like, hey, have you stood guard by Paul over in C? recently, have you talked to him at all about like, why he's in prison? He thinks that this guy named Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, and there's this whole movement of people that are following what they're calling the way, and they're his disciples, and, and they're trying to spread this, this message, this gospel, the euangelion, and, and, and man, we are trying to do everything we possibly can to stomp them out, but the harder we press against them, they don't do anything, but the more they spread, it's crazy, and the other prison guard would be like, I'm on rotation with him next Wednesday. I can't wait. Like, he sounds crazy the empire's agenda was to shut Paul up. But did that work? No, no. In fact, the very opposite happened. The gospel was still advancing. Everyone knows. And here's the other way he saw that the gospel was advancing. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. And so by brothers and sisters, Paul is probably referring to the fellow believers in Rome. Historians aren't 100% sure, but they're pretty positive that Paul would have been imprisoned at Rome during this time. And if that's the case, that dates this letter to around 61 or 62 AD. And if you're a Christian in Rome at that time, that is a tremendously scary and dangerous time to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because the emperor at this time is this guy named Nero, and he was a lunatic. In fact, many historians think that he was literally going insane at the end of his reign. One thing that he did was he intentionally set fire to a portion of Rome, and he blamed the Christians. And, and they, as a result, suffered severe persecution. And so if you lived in Rome during this time and you were a follower of Jesus, you would have been terrified. I mean, this would have been a very scary time to be a follower of Jesus. And so to intentionally go out and preach the gospel... I mean, to even share it with your friend would be to risk prison at best and death at worst. And you would think that with Paul being in prison, set up as an example, that this would actually push the brakes on, on the preaching of the gospel in the Roman Empire, but what happens? What happens? These Roman Christians see Paul in prison and, 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 and they're emboldened. They're inspired to preach the gospel, I think about how we get inspired when we see other people who, who give themselves to a greater cause a cause bigger than themselves and make sacrifices for it. Like for me, I love the Olympics. Anyone else love the Olympics here every time they come around? And you just hear these stories about these athletes who like give up so much for this greater cause, this this goal that they're seeking. And they go to sleep earlier and they wake up earlier and they train so hard and they have these strict diets. Like they don't even eat sugar. Could you imagine not eating sugar? Like this is part of their lives and you hear these stories and you're like, you get inspired by them and you're like, I can wake up earlier and I could push it a little harder. I can go the extra mile, right? And you think, like, I, I might be able to make the Olympics one day. Like, in the back of your head, is that just me? And you're like, I could, I could run that long. I think this is the same thing that's happening here for these brothers and sisters in Rome. They look at Paul, and they're like, man, if Paul can endure prison for the sake of go- the gospel, then why can't we? And if Paul can look death straight in the face for the sake of Jesus Christ, then why can't I? Again, the empire's agenda was to make a public example out of Paul and strike fear into the hearts of these Christians and anyone else who might try to subvert the Roman empire and authority, but did it work? No, it didn't work. Everyone was like, that's the worst you can do? That's it? Prison, death, listen, bring it, bring it. Like for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what we'll see next week. Let's preach the gospel. And so so Paul's situation is bad, okay? Let's let's make that very clear. His situation is bad, but according to Paul, it's all being uh, used to advance the gospel. However, it's not all roses. Let's read verse 15. There are some problems. There are some more problems. Verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so from love because they know that I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. And so Paul's like, okay, there's some good news and there's some bad news. The good news is like people are preaching the gospel boldly and there's more of them out there preaching than ever before, but there's some bad news and that some of these people are preaching it under false pretense. And I don't know exactly why they're doing it, like envy, rivalry, power, influence, money, but they're doing it for some reason, like they're out there for the wrong Reason. It's marred with selfish ambition. And we're not quite sure exactly what was at the, the heart or, or the exact circumstances of these bad faith preachers. But looking at this circumstance again, you would think to yourself, like Paul is in an already bad situation. He, he is seeking to advance the gospel, but he's in prison for, for who knows what time this is that Paul was in prison. And he's seeing these people go out for selfish reasons to preach the gospel. And, and you would think that this would be like salt in the wound for Paul. He'd be like, I can't do this anymore. I am too old for this. I am am throwing in the towel. I am hanging it up. I am done. But is that how Paul responds? Look at verse 18. How does he respond? He says this. What is the result? What is the result? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice Paul's like, listen, it's not great. (laughs) It's kind of crummy that they're doing it for this reason, but what does it matter? The king is being proclaimed. The king is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And there's our word right there, rejoice, rejoice. Paul is stuck in prison. He's suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, and he is rejoicing. I mean, you can't keep this guy down. If I'm stuck in prison, it's a totally different situation. Like I'm live tweeting my misery. I'm like taking a picture of myself and posting it on Instagram, how, how terrible I'm doing. Like I, I'm probably doubting God. I'm probably doubting God in that circumstance there, but not Paul. Now this guy is resilient. He is resilient. He's rejoicing right in the middle of prison. And remember, every time we see Paul use this word joy or rejoice, uh, we, we get to, to, to peel back the curtain and peek inside and, and see and understand how Paul has this resilient joy and how we might be able to go after it as well. And so with that being said, you know, why is Paul full of joy here? I wanna draw our attention to something that I've called the kingdom principle of providence. The kingdom principle of providence now, providence is just a theological word that simply means this. God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey of faith through life, accomplishing his purposes in them. That's what, that's what providence is. God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey of faith through life, accomplishing his purpose in them. And this situation that we have before us in Philippians 1, 12 through 18 is a perfect picture of how God can use a situation, an evil broken situation of persecution and use it to accomplish his purposes in Paul's life. And listen, he can do the same in your life as well. He can do the same in your life as well. Now, now we all live in America, and, and we're probably not going to face what Paul faces anytime soon. I guess it depends on your opinion on that, but I don't think that's the case for us right now. But, but, but listen, your story might be something else. It might be cancer. It might be some sort of unemployment or job situation might be some relational wreckage you're going through right now, but whatever it is, the kingdom principle of providence says that King Jesus is able to work in and through whatever evil that you are bumping up against, and he is able to dig out good from it. That is what God's able to do. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that evil or brokenness is part of God's will or part of his plan. That's not what I'm saying. Like what has happened to Paul here is is evil, it's wrong. The individuals who are going out preaching with wrong motives, that's evil, that's wrong, they will be judged for it. But in ways that we can't comprehend, in ways that are a mystery to us, the kingdom principle of providence says that God is at work in all of this. You see, all of us, every single person in this room, we are going to bump up against evil because we are in the middle of a war. And some of us have gone through life and we have been just destroyed. We are limping along right now because you have faced such hardship and difficulty and brokenness in this world. Others of us have had a relatively easy go at it. We are just bruised and scratched up. But listen, none of us get out of this life immune. None of us do. And I've kind of seen two main responses uh, in Christians when they bump up against evil. And one response is like this really angry, embittered response. That when we bump up against evil, we begin to shake our fists at God and we get angry and we turn away from God and Jesus and the gospel and the church and we end up walking away angry from a God that we no longer believe in. And that's a really unfortunate response. I understand that response. I get that response, but it's a really unfortunate response. Another way that many of us respond is we bump up against evil and we just kind of simply say, hey, God's in control. God's in control. Like, man, he's got this. This is part of his plan. There's a reason for him bringing this about. And listen, there are are bits of truth in that statement, and and I get it. But as a general rule, I I don't subscribe entirely to that. I don't fully buy into that because my problem with both sides is they both blame God for all the evil they encounter. Both sides place all the responsibility on God and because of that, I think they're a a deficient response to the brokenness we encounter in this world and, and neither of them bring us true, resilient joy. In my opinion, God's providence is a far more complex Concept. Sometimes the responsibility lies on God, but I don't think that's the default setting. Like for example, many years ago, I was pastoring at a church in North Carolina and I was meeting with this guy and he had found himself, like his marriage was really solid, he had this good job and they were looking to have children. They were wanting to have children. They felt like it was that right time. They had worked through some marital issues uh, and now they kind of felt settled and stable enough to enter into the season of their life. And so they tried to have kids and by God's grace, she got pregnant. It was amazing. It was awesome. But six months into that pregnancy, he lost his job. He lost his job. And it was gutting and it was devastating and they didn't know how they're going to make ends meet. He didn't know how he was gonna provide for his family. Was that part of God's plan? Maybe, maybe, or maybe it was Satan. Maybe it was some power or principality of this heir at war with the one true creator God trying to wreak havoc on this family that was living under the rule and reign of Jesus. Or maybe it was that guy's sin. Like maybe he was a lazy guy. Maybe he was not a hard worker. I don't think that was the case, but maybe that's why he lost his job. Or or maybe it was the sin of someone else. Like maybe he was a great worker and one of his co-workers was like like stirring up the pot and saying lies about him and his boss believed him and he let him go. Or, Or maybe it's just because we live in a fallen, broken world. You know? Like back then, like I said, it was like over 10 years ago, the economy was just recovering and maybe they didn't have enough money to pay him and they had to let him go. Maybe it was some combination of all the above. The point is, he had no idea, I have no idea, and my default setting is no longer to say in that situation, man, God has a reason for that, he's in control, because honestly, that's not gospel hope. Here's gospel hope. Gospel hope is not that everything that happens to you is the will of God. That's not gospel hope. Gospel hope is, is that, hey, like that is absolutely awful, man. I can't imagine the weight and the fear and the anxiety of what you're going through, but here's what I know. The tomb is empty and Jesus reigns. That's gospel hope. That's gospel hope in the midst of suffering, that no matter what happens to you, Jesus is right by your side. When you bump up against evil, he's right there with you. In that dark season of the soul, he is right there with you. When you face that harm, that hurt, that abuse, He is right there with you, torn open at your side, because our God is a suffering God who stands alongside us as we suffer. And in ways that we can't comprehend and fully understand, He's able to take those broken pieces of life and work in and through them for your good. Amen. He is. He is. He's able to leverage anything for his cosmic purpose of redemption. This is the kingdom principle of providence. And it was, listen, it was at the heart of Paul's resilient joy. And we need to be convinced of it like Paul was if we want to experience joy that does not rest on our circumstances. I think about Romans 8 verse 28 a verse I'm sure you are all very familiar with. Paul writes this verse as well, and he writes this. Listen, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Not just the front half of that verse. You you can't stop at the front half of the verse. God doesn't work all things for good. That's not what the verse says, right? Right? There's a second half to the verse. God works all things together for good for who? For those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's who God works good for. Those who live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Those who wake up day after day and surrender their lives to God and say, God, here is my pain. Here is my brokenness. Here is my past. Here is my present. Here is my future. I give them all to you, God. Not my will, but your will be done. You see, that person, in that person's life, Jesus is able to work in and through and take whatever brokenness you're bumping up against and use it for good in that person's life. And again, this doesn't make evil good. The brokenness you encounter is evil. The abuse you encountered was evil. The cancer you faced is evil. The relational wreckage you faced was evil. The unemployment you face is part of the brokenness of this world. But we worship a God who can take those evil, broken things that were not part of his heart and not part of his will. His heart and will for you was that you would be living in fellowship with him naked in a garden, okay? That's it. That sounds great, right? That's his will for you. The brokenness you encounter in this world is not his will for you. And it's not, our, 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 our job is not trying to imagine that somehow the evil we encounter is actually good. That's not it. That's Buddhism. You know that's Buddhism? That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. We are called to imagine how God is going to pick up the broken pieces of our lives that, 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 that we see and use them for redemptive purposes, for good. Now here's the twist. A lot of you have heard that. You know that. Maybe it was good to be reminded of that this morning. But, but here's the twist, though. Um, as your pastor, Part of the difficult part of my job is I actually have to really live into and believe what I teach before I come up here, okay? And can I just tell you all something and be vulnerable? It's really hard. It's really difficult. It's really difficult, and I've, as I've been wrestling with this passage this past week, I've been wrestling with this concept for like the last year of my life. And, and, and here's where I noticed there was a breakdown in my own life, that, 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 that how I define good is oftentimes very different than how God defines good. Anyone else there with me? A few of you, okay, cool, I'm not the only sinner in the room, fantastic. (laughs) Because here's how I define good for me, okay? Tell me if you're with me on this, like the comfort of my life, how easy my life is, how enjoyable and fun my life is, is that how God defines good? Is that how Paul how would Paul define good? How would he define good? I think for Paul, good means this. Listen, it's real simple. Good means anything that advances the gospel. That's it. Good means anything that advances the gospel. Keep in mind that like this entire letter that Paul's writing is like one big response to, how are you doing, Paul? How are you doing? And and here's what Paul didn't say. Paul wasn't like, man, I was really bummed to go back to prison for the seventh time. It was awful. But, you know, I'm getting old And I kind of appreciated the opportunity to lay low for a little bit. Like I needed a mini sabbatical. And this is working out great. And you know, I have been pretty homeless for a while. And so to have this roof over my head, like not too shabby. And and it's given me some time to write some letters. And so, you know, it's been, Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't try to reframe the, the evil that's happened to him and be like, actually, you know, it's not that bad. That's not what we're called to do. What does Paul do? He doesn't say that. He says, everything that has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And that's why he can rejoice. That's why there's joy in his life. Because of this, he has resilient joy. And Paul is active in this, and he calls us to play an active part in this process in our lives. We don't have to simply sit back and passively wait for God to to work in a redemptive way. We can step forward because Romans 8 says that we are called. We are called to partner with God in this process. So let me ask you, what has happened to you? What has happened to you? You all have a story. And in that story, God is able to write good out of evil, any brokenness you bump up against. And if we wanna truly shift our perspectives as we walk through this life and as we encounter brokenness and as we bump up against the evil in this world, then we must be convinced of this kingdom principle of providence. And listen, when our joy and the advancement of the gospel when those things grow more and more intertwined, when those things become the same, you set yourself up to experience 24-7 joy. Because your joy is no longer connected with how much money you make, or the stuff that you have, or your job situation, or, or, or your marital situation. or or your health, all of that stuff is just icing on the cake, because when your life is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when your life is all about the good news of the kingdom of God, that it is available to you, that life abundant is available to you through Jesus Christ, and anyone you bump into, when you get there, and your life is all about that, You set yourself up to experience joy, real resilient joy that is not um, messed up by circumstances. It does not fluctuate with your emotions. And so this week, This week, as we venture forth from this place, I'd encourage you all, as you read through this passage and join us with your little bookmarks, you know, and you check it off every single day. Someone asks, what do I get if I check off all 10? I'm not sure yet. You get bonus Philippians. There's some extra Philippians we can give you at the end, some free Philippians. But I'd encourage you um, to reflect on that question, that first question. What's happened to me this week as you're reading Philippians, as you're praying? What has happened to me? Think about the ways in which evil has happened to you maybe your parents' divorce, some sickness, that job loss, whatever it might be, maybe even write that down. And then ask yourself, just spend some time thinking through this question, how have I seen the kingdom principle of providence at work in my life? Despite the brokenness I've encountered, how has has God brought good out of that? How has he used it in a beautiful way? And then finally, by faith, here's what I wanna call us toward this morning is is would we fill in the blank of this sentence, because of blank, I rejoice. And you fill in the blank. You know, for Paul, Paul would say the advancement of the gospel, because the the gospel is advancing, I rejoice, what would it be for you? Maybe it's just something simple as like a Sunday school answer like Jesus. It's not a bad answer. Because of Jesus, I rejoice. What would that be for you? Practically, how have you seen God work and why are you going to be rejoicing this week? In fact, even right now, maybe we just spend a little few moments um, reflecting on this right now. Let's close our eyes. The band's gonna come up. We're gonna sing a couple more songs. But would we begin to already reflect on these three questions, you know? What has happened to me? Where have I in my life bumped up against evil? And how have I seen God at work in that? How have I seen him move in and through uh, the the brokenness and hardship that I've gone through and and use it in such a way where he's drawing good out of it and he's he's advancing his purposes in my life? And then finally, what are you going to rejoice in this week? What are you going to rejoice in? Father, we, we are humbled before you right now. there are are aspects of the way that you move and work and exist in our lives that are just beyond our comprehension. And so Lord, I pray that if nothing else, we would just humble ourselves before you and God, would we throw ourselves at the feet of the cross and trust you with our lives. Lord, in a room this full of people, God, you know all of the brokenness and, and hardship and hurt that people are facing, God, and we just wanna give that to you. We wanna lay that at your feet this morning and Jesus, we ask and we trust you and we say, use it, Jesus, not our will, but your will be done in our lives. Well, we, we, we don't want our joy attached to our job situation or our marriages or the money we're making or, or our health, God, because when we do that, man, it is an up and down roller coaster ride. We want resilient joy like Paul has resilient joy. And he attached his joy, not to any of those circumstantial things in life, but he attached those things to you and the advancement of the good news in this world. Lord, by the very nature of every single person being in this room, they've heard this good news. That Jesus, you have come to this earth, offering us abundant life. That you are now king. And even though we look around this world that is just broken and falling apart, God, would, would, would you shift our perspective? Help us to not look at the things of this world, but help our eyes to be fixed on the world that is to come and the world that is already here by your spirit. We don't have to wait for it. We can step into it right now by faith. Help us to do that, God. Help us to surrender to you, and would you change our perspective? so that we would have resilient joy. God, we we trust all of this to you in your son's precious name. Amen.